The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us to discuss the second anniversary of the January 6th attack and insurrection, Professors Carol Anderson and Professor Eddie Gloud. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. It's good to hear your voice, Zerlina. Yes. So I'm going to start with Professor Anderson, because I feel like just to set this conversation up, your book, White Rage, it, it it's the perfect book to read and understand and, and sort of break down in this moment specifically, because in, instead of just going through American history and being like, you know, this was the end of slavery or Jim Crow or look at Rosa Parks or look at um, Brown versus Board of Education. Yay, look at our progress in civil rights, like most history books. What you do is you look at the backlash to that racial progress in this country. And I feel like the insurrection was a very predictable culmination of backlash to the president that we had right before Donald Trump, um, a black man named Barack Obama. So can you just speak to this moment, the second anniversary of January 6th, and, and how what we saw two years ago was in line with the white rage that you talk about in your book and a backlash to racial progress throughout American history. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that really strikes me is how with Barack Obama's election, then you had this wave of voter suppression laws coming up through the states that looked at, that went after what I call the Obama coalition. Because what he did was his ground game brought in millions of new voters, overwhelmingly African-American, Latino, Asian-American, young, and the poor. Voter suppression laws goes after those constituents, goes after those groups. What we saw in 2020 was that all of the voter suppression laws that have been put in place did not stop the determination of folk to get rid of Donald Trump. So despite the pandemic, they voted. They voted absentee. They stood in line, long lines. And the anger, when you hear the Newt Gingriches and the Rudy Giuliani's pointing out and the Donald Trump's pointing out Philadelphia, Detroit, Milwaukee, Atlanta, Maricopa County, as the spaces where the election was supposedly stolen, those are spaces that are have sizable minority populations. And so they are linking the theft of American democracy with black and brown folk. Mm. That's what we're seeing here, is this enragement at how dare you vote out a white supremacist? How dare you cast a vote as if you're an American citizen? So it is an attack on the citizenship 
of folks of color in the United States. That's what we have to understand. And that it was given the cover, the white rage cover, because when I talk about white rage, it isn't the violence that we often think of. It is the policy violence, the bureaucratic violence. And that bureaucratic violence was all of the fake electors, all of the lawsuits, all of the stop the steal, stop the steal, stop the steal. That's what that was. And Professor Gloud, can you um, expand on this point um, that Professor Anderson is making about the the policy violence? Because I do think that it, it, it absolutely worked in tandem. I mean, the rhetoric, obviously, that we heard for four years, but obviously yeah. predating Donald Trump, um, fits in with this. But I think that there was um, an, a failure on the media, media's part to really name what was happening uh, mm-hmm. uh, during the Trump era as like white supremacy, like that it was tied to white supremacy. So expand on this point, but talk a bit about why, why, why we were able to watch everything that happened with Donald Trump and not everybody came to the conclusion that the three of us have. Well, well, you know, first of all, the, you know, Carol's book is just, just, just brilliant in so many ways. And, and I think it's important for us to think about that, that initial iteration. Remember at the, in, with the election of Barack Obama in 2008, what we get the Tea Party. Mm-hmm. And there was this, there was this um, ongoing description of the Tea Party as resulting, as being a result of economic disenfranchisement. A kind of, a sense that uh, these particular voters were, were the latest iteration of the forgotten Americans and what was driving them was in fact uh, this sense of economic uncertainty. And there was this insistence that there that this was the driving motivation, as opposed to the fact that there was a black family in the White House, as opposed to uh, uh, underneath all of this was was the simmering. Uh, simmering was the great replacement stuff, that demographic shifts driving that. In fact, there was this racial anxiety that overdetermined the economic anxiety. Right. And so this was informing all of the, the kind of astroturf protest. And mm-hmm. we saw it deeply racialized in the beginning. Right. And so when this then vomits up Donald Trump, mm. we still have this broad framework of, of, of this segment of the American electorate who feels forgotten, left behind, uh, that you have economic elites on the East Coast who, are, who condescend to these particular folks. I mean, this is an old rhetoric in so many ways. And so Donald Trump gets read into that. Remember, there was this moment where we were beginning to see the language, uh, Zerlina, of the overlap between the Bernie Sanders voter and the mm-hmm. Trump voter, mm-hmm. because there was this underlying uh, kind of uh, argument that there was really at the heart of this economic concern, and as opposed to these demographic anxieties and this, and this white supremacist rhetoric that, that obviously uh, was at the root of it all. And so I think that this is part of that evasion that's at the heart of the American project, this refusal to actually look itself squarely in the face. We can't be this. We can't tell ourselves that it's really white supremacy driving this, because if we tell ourselves that, we're going to have to confront what it means in all of its details. Mm. I mean, I do almost just like sometimes when I talk to professors, I got to like sit and marinate on the points um, and just process it all. And I think that one of the things that you said that struck me um, and and I want to sort of, again, elaborate on this point with Professor Anderson is, you know, why rage and tapping into that worked 
So why tapping into the, the white supremacy worked for Donald Trump? Obviously, as Professor Gloud said, and it struck me, this this whole dynamic vomited up a Donald Trump because we were talking mm-hmm. just in the last segment of, with David Jolly about the Tea Party, right? Because what we're watching um, on Capitol Hill and the failure to, to swear in Kevin McCarthy and all this chaos we've been watching all week, the circus on C-SPAN, um, you know, that that also is a culmination of of the Tea Party movement in a lot of ways mm-hmm. as well. But I but I'm also just struck by the idea that it vomited up Donald Trump, who in many ways embodied this white rage that you talk about in your book, Professor Anderson. But why did what he said? Why did coming down the escalator and attacking Mexicans? Mm-hmm. Why did that work? Why did so many people go out and they don't even like wake up and they're like, I'm a racist. Like they're not thinking that, but it worked on them. And I am always wanting to know. The, the answer to the why. Uh, mm-hmm. re- remember, he Trump launched his political career with birtherism. Mm. That was the one where he undermined the credibility of Barack Obama as an American citizen. Because a long part of the history of the United States is denying the citizenship rights mm-hmm. of folks of color. And so here you have this black man in the White House and Whitney Dow does this wonderful piece where he's talking to white folk and and what he's finding in his talks with them is that they resent mightily, for instance, the, the Christmas card that has Barack, Michelle, Sasha and Malia. How can these black folks be in the White House? That's what Donald Trump tapped into. So when you think about it, there were like 15, 16 Republican candidates running in the primary in 2015, 2016. Many of them had governing experience. They had political policy, public policy experience. Donald Trump had nothing like that. He wasn't even a successful businessman. What he had was a kilo of pure uncut white supremacy that he slapped on the table and said, snort. Mm. And that that kilo was birtherism. Then that kilo was Mexicans are rapists and criminals. Then that kilo were that Muslims were terrorists. Then that kilo was build the wall. Then that kilo, then that kilo, then that kilo. He kept putting that kilo. White supremacy is addictive and it is destructive. And that's what we have to understand about white supremacy. It does damage. It has consistently done damage. And so you have the citizenry rushing to it because it makes them feel empowered. When you think about addicts, they feel empowered on that drug. That drug does something to them, but it also does something to them. And mm. and that's what we have to understand. So we have, um, I saw where one of the the folks who attacked the Capitol and, and the judge, you know, because it was like, because Trump sent me there. And so the judge said, what did Trump do for you that you would be so willing to do this? How did he improve your life? And she said, well, you know, looking back on it, he didn't, he didn't do anything for me. He hurt me. Okay. I guess that's one of the first steps in recovery. Hmm. But but it is that thing that drives hmm. white folk 
to believe that their investment in whiteness supersedes everything else. And that's what we're seeing with this, this fulmination of, 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 of hatred that they stole the election. No, they voted. Mm. They stole the election in Atlanta. No, they voted in Atlanta. They stole the election in Detroit. No, black folks voted in Detroit. And so that's what we have to understand is, is, is how white supremacy creates this addictive, hallucinatory gaze that distorts everything. So let's talk about that, Professor Glau, because I think that there's, I am assuming that there are white people listening to us right now. I also assume that, you know, they may be on all sides of the political spectrum. You know, people can flip around Sirius XM in their cars and on the app. Um, and so, you know, sometimes we have people who are flipping up from the, the more conservative channel. So I'm mm -hmm. assuming that there's a, a the full spectrum of people listening right now who may also be white as well. Let's talk to them. Talk to them about the damage. What damage is it doing? And how can they recognize it and resist sort of the defensiveness that I often hear and see from even moderate conservatives who are like, you know, I, I don't understand why these Trump people are going along with this. I don't understand white privilege. I don't feel like I have white privilege. I mean, let's talk to them. Talk about the damage um, that, uh, you know, feeding into this is doing to them and, and help them under help them see the white privilege of it all as well. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, I think it's really important to understand that when we talk about white supremacy, we're talking about an ideology, we're talking about at a certain level of generality, uh, a, a certain set of systems, and it's not just kind of uh, talking about individual choices in, yeah. in this sense. In this sense. Um, and, and so it's really important for us to kind of make that distinction. I want to I want to invoke Heather McGee's work yes. uh, as a way of thinking about the cost of this, I mean, the wages of whiteness in some ways to invoke uh, Du Bois's phrase, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's phrase uh, from Black Reconstruction um, in a way that, that, that cuts in a different direction, right? So there's this sense, and, and Heather uses this, this wonderful um, uh, example in her book uh, about uh, public pools, uh, that there, there's this moment where, you know, you have immigrant America and everybody's in their, their silos speaking their individual languages. And there, there's this imagining of public pools as this source where you can begin to build a sense of community apart from, from our individual differences. And so folk go to the pools. These, they build these huge public pools in St. Louis and Jackson, Mississippi and Chicago and the like. And the moment that black folk start asking for entree to be able to swim in those pools because we're drowning in creeks. We're drowning in these places, right? Mm -hmm. Folks start, they, they deny it. They say, no, black folk can't do it. So they put concrete in the damn pools. In other words, if you want it, none of us can have it. If you want access to it, none of us will have it. And so Heather argues, I think, and this is a kind of truncated uh, rendering of the argument. She argues that white supremacy narrows the very conception of the public good. So yes. it harms, so it harms those who are invested in it as much as it harms us, you know, black folk and people of color. I was reading the other day, Zerlina, this uh, essay by um, uh, Ralph Ellison, the, the famed uh, author of Invisible Man and the essay Shadow and Act. He wrote an essay for Time Magazine in 1970 entitled, What Would America Look Like Without Blacks? Hmm. 
And he has this extraordinary formulation that I've been reading this essay for years, but it struck me this time. He said, there are these moments when white America is not certain of itself, when they're not clear about who and what we are as a nation. And then it engages and he uses this phrase, it engages in this tricky magic mm. where we find these others, these other people, these black people, these Muslims, these terrorists, and these others, particularly black folk, become the basis to consolidate a notion of who we are as white people, of who the nation is as a white nation. Yes. And so there's the cost, there's the cost, and then there's the tricky magic to solidify an uncertainty, to address an uncertainty about who and what the nation is, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. And I'm marinating, you know, I, I'm a lot of <laughs> my conversations. Um, and as you said, you know, rereading essays is about just sitting with it for a little bit, because I think this is a moment where I've never lived through this moment, right? There are other folks who have lived through similar moments and parallel moments throughout the course of American history. And many of them are documented in your book, Professor Anderson. But how do we move forward? We sit here on the anniversary of January 6th. We are watching a week in which Congress is in complete and total chaos. They're going to come into mm. that House chamber today without a speaker. No, none of them have been sworn in. There are no rules in the House. And that was the same chamber that was attacked violently two years ago by white supremacists who carried Confederate flags through the Capitol. So it feels mm. like the symbolism is all there. <laughs> so what do we do? It requires us to do the really heavy lifting. So as Eddie was laying out, is that it's like, who are we? Because when January 6th happened, you heard so many folks going, this is not who we are, <laughs> yeah. right? right? And that is a denial of the history. Uh, when Eddie said, this is us, it, yep. It, yep. right? Oh, Lord, yes. Uh, it requires us to do that deep introspection, the honest, heavy lifting of who we are. That's why we write these histories so that it can, it, there's a, a way for us to see what this pattern looks like so we can break it. When we talked about the cost, uh, one of the things that I lay out in, in White Rage is that after the civil rights movement, uh, we got, which was like, woo, we got the war on drugs yep. that where we've spent over a trillion dollars locking up most the folks who do drugs the least. Now think about as a society, what we could have done with a trillion dollars in terms of healthcare, in terms of education for all of us. When you think about how voter suppression is the thing that allowed Donald Trump to win in 2016, because that was the first election, presidential election in 50 years without the protection of the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. Black voter turnout went down by 7%. No, this it, is it hurt all of us. It hurt all of us. It requires us yep. to really look at ourselves, know our history, wrestle with it, and demand that we do better, that we don't keep falling into these same patterns mm. of white rage. Mm. 
It's such an important point. I mean, um, and I, I, I also think a lot about reconstruction in a moment mm-hmm. like this and, and um, redemption uh, in a moment right. like this. Ooh. So, Professor Cloud, can you make that parallel? Because it's one that I've mentioned on the show before, but I think as I'm joined by two people who teach this and who study it and are you know steeped in it and and think about this deeply draw that parallel for us because i feel like we are i mean i remember when reverend barber came to clinton headquarters this is a true story reverend barber in 2016 came to clinton headquarters and stood there in the office and told all of us staffers we were uh we were basically (laughs) in another construct a reconstruction period like we were living through Mm -hmm. that parallel and now sitting here now post donald trump presidency post insurrection I think back on that day. So so take us through that parallel because that is a really important one to understand so we can fully grasp this moment and this anniversary. Oh, oh wow. I think Professor Anderson would have been better to answer that one. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, no, either, either of you can. I was just trying to play, you know, make no, me fair. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. But I, I think I think I was as I was as you were asking the, the, the former question about what do we do next? It connects with this question. And I, and I was thinking we finally have to end the civil war. Mm. Mm. <laughs> we finally have to end it. And to think about the parallels with reconstruction is to say, look, here we have this moment, this brief window where the nation finally tries to, genuinely tries to imagine itself as a multiracial democracy. We get the emergence of the modern nation state as a result of the civil war, right? And we get the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments. We get our understanding of modern modern citizenship here. And we've been battling around the 14th amendment ever since it was ratified, right? And then Mm -hmm. we see what happens with reconstruction where you have this historic, world historic effort to bring a people who were fundamental, who were once slaves, chattel, into the body politic as free, self-determining citizens. And we see these folk enter into the body politic and begin to, to, to change the very fabric of the country. And what do we see? The Civil War still engaged. Yes. We see it walked back, a fundamental attack on something that Professor Anderson said, that these folk dared to behave as if they were sovereign citizens. They see these folk believe that they could vote and be equal to us? Oh, hell no. And from that <laughs> moment, Right. Yeah. And from that moment, you have a systematic assault. Yep. Right. And so we've seen this. And so what we have are folks who weren't held to account, mm-hmm. folk who were engaged in treacherous, traitorous behavior, mm-hmm. weren't held to account, brought back into the body politic, brought that, you know, that those assumptions, those beliefs in governance. And we have been living with it ever since. Mm-hmm. We've been living with it in terms of the stories we tell ourselves. We've been living it with, in terms of the distribution of advantage and disadvantage. We are still fighting, Darlena, and your audience. We are still fighting the Civil War. And so the only way to move forward is to end it. Yes. It seems to me. Yes. And so think about the battles over removing Confederate statues. Yep. So why are there Confederate statues <laughs> who were the yep. folks who attacked the United States of America? Why are they even in the public square? It's because we haven't stopped fighting the Civil War. Um, mm-hmm. Why are we having these battles over what's being taught in our K through 12 curriculum in terms of history? It is because we haven't stopped fighting the Civil War. We haven't stopped denying that Black folks could be citizens because that is the, 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 
the root of this thing is is this battle over citizenship because the battle over citizenship is the battle over who we are oh. as a nation. Absolutely. And just really quickly, Zerlina, mm -hmm. this is not abstract. The Supreme Court will take up more v. Harper. Right. Mm -hmm. And the whole notion of redistricting uh, yes. where and what's going on in North Carolina, mm -hmm. what's going on across the country. Here we are in 2023 and we're still fighting around the franchise, not just simply being denied the vote, but it being abridged. That's it's in the 15th Amendment. It's those two words yes. denied and abridged. abridged. Yes. Right. So so we're still there. We're still fighting it. Yeah, and, 2023. And it, right. And it was the Supreme Court that eviscerated the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments, as well as the Force Acts and the Enforcement Acts, that architecture that the radical Republicans had put in place to yeah. to to protect the citizenship of the freed people. And that Supreme Court systematically dismantled it during Reconstruction and afterwards. Um, and that's why we had to have a second Reconstruction with the Civil Rights Movement. It, it's it's such an important point. Um, I think that the, the systemic, understanding how the systems dismantle the progress mm -hmm. um, is, is like, that's the eureka moment, I think, for, for so many people. That's, you got to understand that. You have to understand how these systems are working to dismantle the progress that people are fighting for. So we have five more minutes. This has been an amazing conversation. I'm just so grateful for both of you because I think that everybody who started this conversation is going to be smarter by the end of it. So when you look, I want to talk just about what actually we're looking at on the House floor um, mm. because we've been, we've been talking about um, the insurrectional morning, obviously, it is the second anniversary of the attack on the Capitol. But I also keep thinking about how Donald Trump sort of obscured, um, you know, the the chaos and sort of the the mess that is underneath <laughs> that distraction. So, Professor Anderson, first to you. I mean, talk a bit about just the chaos we're seeing on the House floor and how that is a manifestation of all of all of the rage that brought Donald Trump to the forefront. I mean, these people are not Donald Trump. None of them are named Donald Trump. But, you know, the end result is still the same. Right. And so I'm going to go back to a book by Norm Ornstein and Thomas Mann yes. called It's Even Worse Than mm. It Looks, right? And they identify Newt Gingrich as the progenitor of this mess because he realized that the demographics were shifting because the Republicans... Um, in had brought in the Southern Democrats after the 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 Democratic Party had begun recognizing that Black folks had civil rights, and so now the Southern Democrats are like, "Oh, where do we go?" And I'm like, "Out to the wilderness." But the Republicans saw a political opportunity and brought them in because they believed that there were more. As one said, "This isn't South Africa. There are more whites than there are uh, Black people." And so they saw it demographically, they they saw it transactionally, but you cannot bring that toxin of white supremacy in and think it's not going to touch you. And so it moved the party so far to the right that they lost the demo, the Republicans lost the demographic battle. And so Newt Gingrich figured out how do we stay in power when we don't have the numbers? Mm. And so we stay in power by attacking the very government itself saying, you know, Washington doesn't work. It's dysfunctional. Und so underneath all of that is racism, is white supremacy. 
And so what we're seeing now is the result of that, is the result of extreme partisan gerrymandering that creates these hyper red districts where you have folks in who, who, who believe that government can't work because you don't want government to work because the census is that when government works, then everybody benefits. Mm -hmm. and, it's a, and you don't want everybody to benefit. Professor Glad, I'm just going to say go to end the conversation, uh, well, you know, because I, I feel like I this would, is just flowing. Conversation. I would just add one footnote because everything uh, Professor Anderson just laid out is just absolutely on point. But one footnote is that th it's also an example of folk not being held accountable. Yes. Mm. So when we think God. about when we think about the collapse of Reconstruction and that's the wrong verb, the, the murder of Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um. Um, we have to understand that there were actors who engaged actively in, in rebelling against the nation, who, who, who fought on the battlefield, who were not held to account. And those folk changed, I mean, it impacted the trajectory of the country. Mm -hmm. um, and we have folk who engaged in the, re in, 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 in the insurrection. Mm -hmm. um, uh, think about how many election deniers are among these folk. Mm -hmm. Think about how many anti-vaxxers are among these folk. Think about how many of these folk who are part of the 20, who, who, uh, did, who voted for decertification. Think about who these people are. Mm -hmm. and, and then just add to that, that they're not the sharpest tools in the tool chest. <laughs> Matt freaking Gates. Come on, give me a break now. Come on. Right? Talk about so, it. So, so part of, not only do we have what Professor Anderson laid out, we also have the historic reality that folk who have fomented hatred, who've mm. exploited grievance, who've engaged in violence, have rarely been held to account in this country. And it has something to do, I think, with uh, the, 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 the family nature of the Civil War that was brother against brother. Uh, and people don't want to hold the family account to account. They don't want to hold the people that they love to account. They don't want to hold their neighbors to account. They don't want to hold these folk to account, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that could not be a more true statement. I mean, how often have we heard throughout the course of the last several years, you know, oh, well, you can't really call, you know, Trump supporters racist. I'm like, and then he would do, you know, a, a racist thing every week. And every week I would, you know, on Monday be like, all right, now, all right, now. I mean, now he said, you know, now he's attacking a, you know, a gold star family. Now, can we do it now? He said, you know, he said there were people on both sides that were good. One side had mm. Nazis. So I assume that if the people standing among the Nazis, he was including them and the good people on both sides. And, and I'm like, now can we call him racist? Now can we call it out for what it is? And so you're so right on the money when you say that rarely, um, if ever, we've fully held folks accountable for the rhetoric and for the actual violence. And for the actual violence, I mean, the, the people who ran up in the building, some of them have been charged and imprisoned. Mm -hmm. But the people who organized and orchestrated mm -hmm. it, as we learned through the hearings and the mm -hmm. report, they're still at home. They're still at home. And, and, and that is something that keeps me up at night, actually, sometimes. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, and so as we um, we don't celebrate this anniversary, we're marking uh, this second anniversary of January the 6th, the insurrection, the attack on the Capitol, 
Um, and we're so grateful to these two brilliant professors, Professor Carol Anderson and Professor Eddie yes. Cloud. Thank you so much for being here. This was an incredible conversation. I feel like honored. I'm going to listen back to this conversation because I feel like there was so much wisdom um, and information and books that I can um, pick up again. Because <laughs> um, I was like, Black Reconstruction, I got to read that again. I was like, yeah, I read that because, you know, uh, Kendra Field is one of my best friends. So, I, you know, W. Du Bois is like, you know, I read all the things um, when we were uh, – uh, roommates I read all her whole her whole bookshelf I read it um, but uh, but rereading is always very important as well grateful to you both for being here today the books that you should get White Rage well there's many books because you're professors you've written many books but Eddie Gloud um, his most recent book is Begin Again Right, Eddie? Mm-hmm. Or did you write another yes, book thank- since then? No, be- <laughs> beginning okay, Thank you so much. I got to keep track. You know what I mean? <laughs> professors have a lot of books. That's what you do. Um, so White Rage and Begin Again, two books by two brilliant professors, Cloud and Anderson. Thank you so much. This has been thank an you. honor. Thank you. Thank you. Please Take stay care safe. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday.